Welcome to the Less Doing Podcast, where you will learn how to start living more by doing less. Let me help you optimize, automate, and outsource your entire life so you can focus on doing the things you love. Now here's your host, Ari Mizell. So, Diana House, welcome to the Less Doing Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks so much for having me on. So let's talk about, before we get to how you're now helping successful entrepreneurs find and create more profit, how did you start out? So went to law school, didn't want to be a lawyer. After law school, sold all my things, fled to Bali um, to do a yoga teacher training where I found my first business idea. That was a e-commerce company called Tiny Devotions that I sold in August of this year. So very recently. And uh, it was a pretty cool start because the first month the website went up, I paid for the entire website and more. Like I think we did $10,000 of sales our first month. And I realized very quickly that I could not do everything within the company. <laughs> which kind of totally leads into what, you know, you're all about. Um, so <laughs> I, I really um, became a master delegator over those years. And, uh, you know, first delegated out making the products. That was the easiest thing to delegate out. Um, then, you know, outsourced the customer service so that I could focus on my, my zone of genius, which was marketing. Um, then after a few years, I realized, you know, if I had to market these beads any longer, I was going to lose my mind. Um, so I also, um, you know, outsourced that and um, I went to a Tony Robbins business mastery event and he said something that was so profound that really um, impacted me. Um, and he said that, you know, being an operator will make you a living, but being an owner will make you a fortune. And that sentence really um, forced me to get excited about learning how to be a business owner and be what I call the least important person within my company, which is, I think, similar to what you call being as replaceable as possible. Yes, absolutely. Now, wh what, as I usually ask this later in the interview, actually, but I, I'm, I'm curious for you now, what is the biggest challenge for you and your business since you are trying to be on that path of replaceability? What's the biggest challenge right now? I'm starting a brand new chapter. So I have I've built and sold two e-commerce companies. And um, in like the one I had for nine years, like, you know, there was six or seven years where I had never answered a phone call, like not for a customer or not for a vendor or anything like that. So I would say I, I pretty much had mastered being the business owner. The one area that I did not master it was, was um, navigating a pivot without being really embedded in the organization. Um, and it's a bit more complicated than that because the product went from a blue ocean to a red ocean, you know, bloody waters product. And I had zero alignment or passion in that space and the market got really infiltrated. So it's maybe hard to say, but I guess the one question that I really have, uh, you know, deep within me is, you know, this next company that I'm building Will I ever get to the place where we would be able to navigate huge market changes, even with me in that um, just owner role and not having, you know, my hands in the business? So then, but, and just let me dig in that a little bit further. So like day to day though, where are you finding that right now you are the biggest bottleneck? 
So yeah, so this company um, I started in September. So very, very early. And I mean, I've had a crazy trajectory just because of you know my network and my expertise as an entrepreneur. And so right now I'm, I'm actually in a lot of the doing. Um, so my first phase has been, uh, so what I really do is I feel like I'm the only kind of like high level successful entrepreneur that is teaching um, entrepreneur finance to other successful entrepreneurs. So there you know, are accountants who do this. There are you know, maybe CFOs who do this. And they do this from a very, what I call, accountant ease language. Um, it's confusing. Entrepreneurs have no idea what they're talking about. It's not fun. Um, and so I saw a massive gap um, in the industry. And it aligned with my passion. Um, and that was really because of my own story of really wanting to master this area and really searching out people to help me and realizing there wasn't really anyone. And I had to kind of piece it all um, together. And so what I'm building right now, which will probably come out in March 2019, is a scalable um, program um, that will be like my main offer in the space. Um, but in order to do that, I have to work with a ton of one-on-one -on -one clients to really nail down what are the pain points, what are the patterns, what is every little aspect of the curriculum that I need to do. And so for this phase, and I mean, maybe you'll challenge me on this, but my story is that I actually need to be the one in the art and doing the work, which is the first time that I've been the doer in probably like seven or eight years. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily challenge you on. I mean, there's certain phases where that makes sense. The The point is that most people, when they get there, they end up staying there for way too long. Uh, and one of the things that we often see, or I often see, is that at particular revenue points in people's growth, there are different issues that they tend to deal with. But when I say different issues, the, the issues at a particular revenue level seem to be the same across businesses and industries. And so up to about $300,000, the focus really should be on sales and being in it a lot of cases, but then from like 300 to a million, that's when you really need to sort of hunker down and focus on the systems and processes to replace you and begin to do that. Um, so, you know, depending on where you're at with this particular business, it, it, it's not that clear cut of an answer, but we do need to sort of see in the future how we can, you can avoid getting stuck now, right? Because it's so interesting for me as a coach, I, I have a program with 50 people now that I, well, it's, it's capped at 50. And it's not, it's a group coaching program, but I end up doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one. and I'm doing it in a way that is way more scalable than when I was actually doing one-on-one -on -one and my capacity was like eight or nine clients. So it's just sort of, uh, how you approach it now, the, the art is great, but there should be some way for you to play with the art while still having the systems develop. For sure. And yeah, like I have a team that is doing all the systems around me. I, I think I'm like very fortunate in the sense that like, I'm not administratively gifted. <laughs> so like, I don't even try. And I think the other thing is, um, you know, back in the day when I was doing this, and I actually, I don't know if you've heard of Tyler Wagner, but he does this book project called The Better Business Book. And so I think three years ago, I actually wrote a chapter of it. And it was all about owning your own business and not letting it own you and all about stepping into being a business owner and not being an operator, um, you know, or in the business. And so for me, it is like, that's like how I see the world. So it's, it's like, I'm probably more impatient than other entrepreneurs to get out of the doing as opposed to being the doing. Like I, I almost like err the other way. Like I might, I might accidentally get out sooner than, you know, I, I need to. So I'm actually trying to be, I'm trying to be patient. So my goal for this business is um, in April, I'm actually going back to Necker Island 
with my mastermind at Richard Branson, which I'd done a few years ago, which was one of the most profound experiences for this work because he does not work in an office. He is completely reliant on his team and seeing, you know, someone who's a multi-billionaire function in his element like that had a massive influence for me because it released any guilt I had of being an entrepreneur that even though I, I own my own office and had a space, like I did not work in there. And that was very different than a lot of, you know, local entrepreneurs where I live. And so finding a role model that showed me that that was okay and that you could actually thrive like that just gave me a lot of permission. So let's, let's shift a little bit. So with, with the people that you're working with, you're working with entrepreneurs. I really like what you say on your website about a chief financial entrepreneur, right? So I always, and, and myself included, I always feel like entrepreneurs are the ones you want to keep away from the finances as much as possible. Um, cause I used to, I will well, used to, I feel like it's fairly recent. We have a bookkeeper just to be clear, but I'm like the kind of, I'm the kind of like uh, entrepreneur where it's like, oh, there's money in the, in the bank at the end of the, the month that we're doing. Okay. Um, which is obviously not very sustainable. And even with our bookkeeper, basically, you know, I get a PL at the end of the month and she says, we're doing great. And I don't really, I look at it and kind of move on. So I, in some ways, like I feel like you want to keep the entrepreneurs away from the finances, but there is obviously needs to be some sort of interaction with it that makes sense, right? So what, what do you, how do you teach that? You're going to love this um, because again, because I built it from your mindset, um, which is I think the disruptive thing about what I'm doing here. So yes, I believe every entrepreneur should have an accountant who does their year end and I think that confuses people. A lot of people think that accountants derive the operational financial success of your business. They don't, at least in 99% of those cases. They, they just do your year-end, your tax filing. And then some good accountants will also give you tax planning, which gives you, you know, installments that you should be looking at for you know, the next year. So instead of getting like a 200K tax bill at the end of the year, you're paying that on, on a monthly basis and it's never hitting you. And it's shocking how many accountants don't even do that, even though that's really only like two of the things that they really need to do. Um, and then I would say 99% of entrepreneurs should also have a bookkeeper, which is what you're implying. Um, of course, yeah, maybe there's the 1% of entrepreneurs that like really love doing that. But I would argue that you probably just have like an, a letting go issue and a micro issue and you should probably let that go. Um, I look at bookkeeping as like, and I don't mean pay your bookkeeper $15. But in my head, I call it like a $15 an hour task. Like it's an administrative task that you should delegate out for, you know, maybe it's as low as $15 an hour, maybe it's 20, 25, you know, up to, um, we have a finance person who does our books for one of our companies that requires a very high level of excellence because it's a, a mortgage company where we do mortgage investments and it, we pay her $35 an hour. Um, so having a bookkeeper is great. Traditionally, how people use their bookkeepers is exactly what you're saying. Um, the bookkeeper, you know, adds zero value. All they do is, and maybe that's not zero value, they add minimal value because what they do is they allocate transactions in an accounting software. And that's another thing I would say 99% of entrepreneurs should have an, some kind of accounting software like QuickBooks or Xero. Please put it on the cloud because if it's on a desktop, it's going to be like in another city on this random bookkeeper's things. And it's amazing how many multiple seven-figure entrepreneurs I know do not know how to get into their accounting software. Caveat. It's, is this you? 
No, no, no. I know. Well, actually, you know what? That's really funny. Literally, like five days ago, I asked my bookkeeper for the password for QuickSwift. It was only because I was trying to connect it to like Zapier. So that's that's really bad. That's amazing. Um, so this is a real thing. And again, there's no shame around it. You're just a normal visionary entrepreneur that wants to sell things and create things and doesn't want to worry about this, which I totally get. So um, your your on your bookkeeper, you know, allocating transactions is is great. That's called level one. And I think one of the things about less doing is about efficiency and maximizing results with as little extra work as possible. And so you have a bookkeeper, you're paying them. And I hope this analogy doesn't sound crass, but I'm all about like squeezing the lemon out of the resources that I have. And I really look at a bookkeeper that function as a resource. So I don't think we give bookkeepers enough credit. They are looking at every single transaction that goes through our business, like they see everything. We probably don't even see 1% of that. So what I do, one of the things I do is I empower my entrepreneurs. So when I say CFE or chief financial entrepreneur, I'm not saying like you need to be a CFO or that you need to be in your QuickBooks file every day, like not at all. What I'm saying is you need to be the quarterback of your business and you need to be empowered so that your accountant and finance, you know, admin or bookkeeper knows what to do and knows what your expectations are. And how I do this is creating a very simple system called the CFO report. And so in your case, what I would advise you to do is have your bookkeeper create um, a monthly email. So for what are we at? We're at December. So, you know, by January 10th of the, of the next month, she would send you an email that would say like, hey, Ari, your, um, your bookkeeping is up to date for the month. Um, and here is your CFO report. And so what you would do, and this is where the less doing comes in, you would sit down, you know, one time and you would really figure out what are the financial metrics in this business that really drive the results. And that specifically connects to maybe your passion in the business and where you want to focus on. Um, and so, like, for instance, I did a deep dive uh, yesterday with a, you know, multi eight figure entrepreneur. And for, for this person, she was very passionate about marketing. Um, and she she looked at her business from really solely a marketing perspective. And so she wanted those numbers to really be aligned with marketing because that's how the lens that she looked at that. So what, what you would do is you would sit down and you would create these metrics. What are the things that you want to be looking at on a monthly basis? And do you want to compare that to, you know, next year? So for you, for instance, it might be like, hey, you want to, you want to know what December's revenue was. You want to know what your... Um, maybe you want to know what your gross profit was. And I'm going to just graze over these terms and we can dive into any of them deeper if you want. Um, what your profitability was. And maybe you want to compare what was that month like to other months this year? Or maybe what was that month like to um, the previous year's December, if that makes sense based on you know launches and other things that you're doing? Um, sometimes it doesn't make sense if like the businesses has really, really pivoted. Then there might be very specific, you know, performance markers, like um, what was like a, what, what did you guys spend on marketing? Like what percentage? I really like percentages because I think it really, you know, it's very easy for entrepreneurs to understand like what piece of their revenue pie are they, you know, putting out to these different areas. But so essentially you create, get them to create this report for you. It's like five lines. And then you can also have some other little notes on there that you can ask them, like, tell me something that I need to know. Um, that's unusual about this month. You know, did you find a cost savings this month? Hold them accountable to finding some kind of cost savings every month. 
Um, and by creating this format, I feel like it squeezes the bookkeeper's value and you know, really 10Xs the result that they're giving for you. Sometimes the entrepreneur doesn't necessarily know what metrics they should be looking at, right? To be honest. Uh, I think everyone knows about revenue and profit and stuff, but which is important. But I, I think that for many businesses, there may be something that's more important to look at. And maybe cost of goods sold is really important, or maybe you know, return on ad spending is really important. I, I think that that's something too, where we've had to come to that realization as well. Um, Cause we have a critical number for us, which is that we have this coaching program called the less doing leaders and it has a capacity of 50 people in it. And the most important number for us is the number of people in that program at any given time. Right. And so, I mean, other things that might be important for you. And again, I'm, I'm just putting out ideas like, did they pay all up front or did they pay with a payment plan? And like the one client I was working with um, recently um, for her on her PL, the way that her revenue was broken down, she wanted to know, and she didn't even realize that she wanted to know this until I started asking her questions, that she wanted to know how many people came in on a payment plan and how many people um, came full because she knew based on that, if they would be buying her back end offer. Right. So she could forecast. Exactly. So, I mean, there's so many different things. And yes, if you have a physical product company, COGS is one of the most important numbers in your business, cost of goods, because if you don't have a good, you know, cost of goods number, if it's too high, like you don't have a fighting chance. And ironically, this is how I got into doing this work. So uh, about within the year, I got this amazing email from e-commerce fuel and it had a state of the union email. Um, and it was specifically around e-commerce businesses. And what I realized was that my, you know, very profitable seven-figure e-com company was making more profit than the eight-figure companies. So that's possible. Like, I mean, I can't think of what's more definition of less doing, right? The eight-figure company, they have more, more staff, you know, literally more transactions, more customers likely, whereas I was reaping the benefits with having, you know, a way more sustainable business. And I was sitting, you know, on the beach in California, um, you know, doing my thing while my team, my very small team, you know, pumped out this profit. And so what does your team look like now? So yeah, right now, so at the end of August, when I sold the business, um, you know, I, I did kind of, you know, amicably um, kind of let go of our team. Unfortunately, I did find them um, new roles. One of them became a um, full-time freelance designer. Another one actually um, is working in operations for Adrian Dorison, Run Like Clockwork. I don't know if she's on your radar, um, but she would be someone else that would be great for you to speak with. Um, and so, yeah, right now I just have two contractors, um, one on the graphic design, you know, marketing side, and then one on the operation side. And then we're in the process of hiring an executive um, assistant to do, you know, all the things. And then, I mean, I have like, this is for this company. We have other companies that, again, we have more external teams on the accounting and legal side. But uh, we, yeah, we run a pretty lean team. And then uh, is it all remote? Uh, no, actually. So we are based in London, Ontario, Canada. We have a place in Toronto and then a place in San Diego. So we go back and forth between the three. But our office, our physical office space is in London, Ontario. And so um, most of our team works in office um, in there, except for our outsourced legal and accounting teams. And how are you communicating with your team currently? So um, I'm, I really like email. I think I'm one of the only people in the world who does. <laughs> um, so I do a lot of email. Um, I'll do, you know, I do go into the office, you know, one or two times a week. So I'll do, 
um, in person as well as email. Okay. Um, so I, it's, I always like to look at communications, project management, and process. Or what's your, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Are you a Slack guy? Well, uh, so I, I'm, I don't want to. I don't want to call you out or anything, but I think that email is a really, really bad tool for internal communication. Yeah, I've, I've been told. And I mean, I'm open. I've heard Slack's really good. I've had a few friends in my mastermind, like all my whole mastermind uses Slack. So it's on my well, it does, So It doesn't have to be Slack. I mean, we, we're big Slack. Well, actually, we're not big Slackers anymore, but it's, it, does have, it just has to be something different from email. It has to be communication is the one area of productivity where it's actually a good thing to have multiple different tools because they have to have multiple different purposes. So for example, with my team and my coaching clients, we communicate uh, almost completely using Voxer. Most of it is done by voice and we have Slack, but we barely use it. We were much more on Slack, but Voxer's really taken over for that. But then we use Intercom for the uh, crossover between internal and external communication. So when we're talking to people who have customer service issues or sales issues, but we also need to be able to discuss it internally with the team. We're using Intercom for that. Uh, we actually use Trello as project management tool, but when something has to do with a project or a task, the communication is exclusively in Trello. So it's it's really about being intentional about the different communication systems that you use. And the problem, the, one of the big problems with email is that it's very, very hard to make yourself replaceable, right? Uh, bringing somebody else in to manage your email is actually very rarely a good solution um, because it just suggests that you don't have good systems in place. So that's, I mean, it's, there's a bigger discussion there, which I'm happy to have with you. But Very interesting, especially because that's one of our goals for the next few months is for someone to man my husband's inbox. So he hates, he hates email. He actually hates everything but phone calls. <laughs> um, and I mean, he's very, you know, I have very high executive functioning skills. I would say he is on the complete opposite spectrum, super visionary, super creative, super ADHD, um, hates text, hates Facebook inbox, hates email. I literally tell people either not to communicate with him, communicate with him or call him. Yeah, but you know, the interesting thing is, so like the inbox problem, so I have this whole inbox zero thing uh, that I teach, but the inbox the email issue is not an email issue. It's a decision-making problem for most people. And especially if your husband is an ADHD creative, as you said, then that makes sense. So some of that is about having a structure in place to do it. But simply subrogating your email to somebody else is not its not a real solution. Interesting. I'm at, I, I love Inbox Zero. I'm at Inbox 50, though. That seems to be my number. <laughs> I like well, I don't know why 50, but 50 is the number that I, I can breathe on, and it never really goes above 150. Well, but, you know, inbox zero doesn't mean that there's no emails in your inbox. That would just be an obsession. That's not the point. The inbox zero really means that you know how you're going to handle an email that's in your inbox when you decide to focus on it. So um, what what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? And you can interpret that however you like. Sure. So, I mean, this one's very controversial, but I, I swear by it. Like, I wake up at 4.30 in the morning <laughs> and I don't set an alarm. Like, I just get up at 4.30 and I'm like, ready to go. I, my husband always says like, I accomplish more between 4.30 and 8 than people do in a whole week. So I think that is like one tactic. And I know not everyone's a morning person, but it really, really works for me. Do you have kids? Uh, I do not. Just ask that me. Be, just ask that'd me. That'd be my tip number two. Don't have kids. No, just, <laughs> uh, I'm totally kidding. Um, so I think the second thing is, I really do think you've nailed it with the being decisive. Um, you need to know, like, who are you? What is your goal? And be relentlessly focused on only doing that and ignoring everything else. 
And I mean, that's so macro and, and you do that in so many different ways, but that could be like, like little things, how that plays out is like unsubscribing from every single mailing list that does not serve you. Like I think I'm on like two mailing lists um, because I just do not want extra data in my inbox because I actually, I do hang out in my inbox quite a bit, which I know a lot of productivity experts say isn't great, but for me, it, it really works for me. The other thing is a, a lawyer that I worked with when I was in my legal years, he had this uh, rule with his inbox. He was one of the highest producing lawyers at this law firm. Every email he either replied, deleted to, or printed right away, one touch email, um, did not touch an email more than once. And so I do like an adapted version of it. I don't think I'm as disciplined as he is, um, but that would be another thing. And then I write down everything, every idea, every thought. So like I never miss anything. I never lose like a thought that I had that is, you know, something. And I mean, okay, the last one I feel like I've done way more is I'm obsessed with Boomerang. Good. Well, and, and you know, now Gmail has that function built in, the snooze functionality. And uh, you should check out Mixmail because it's a little bit more powerful than Boomerang. My only issue with Boomerang is that you have to be logged into desktop Gmail to use it, which is like a big no-no for me. But you know there, is, there is an app now for your phone. It's just, not very good. I feel like it's a, it's, yeah, it's not very good. I had it. It's gone. I don't have it. Yeah, I, I do agree. But I do like my desktop again. I, I'm not, you know, like a talkie more. I only have my cell phone and I, I'm a bit more traditional with like, I love my laptop and I'm on it every day. So it that's, works for me. That's great. So, uh, well, thank you, Diana. So where can people find out more about you and start uh, to learn from you? Yeah, I mean, I have a really great opt-in that's currently up on dianahouse.com. It is like my 10 profitability checklist framework. Um, it's like the 10 things that I think every entrepreneur needs to be able to maximize aligned profit within their business. So yeah, that's on dianahouse.com. And I recently just joined uh, the Instagram world and I'm at Diana Powerhouse. Fantastic. Well, uh, Diana, thank you again for your time and for sharing some great information with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Less Doing Podcast. At Less Doing, we help entrepreneurs who have opportunity in excess of what their infrastructure can support to set up systems and processes that empower a team to ultimately make themselves more replaceable. That way they can optimize, automate, and outsource everything in their businesses in order to be more effective. If you want to find out more about Less Doing, the podcast, the blog, the books, and all of the wonderful programs we offer to help you get from where you are to where you know you want to be. Go to lessdoing.com slash podcast and check out our OAO blueprint so you can get started today.